Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. I am thrilled to welcome my guest today, Mark McNally. He is a serial entrepreneur with a broad base of experience, scaling companies from startup through multinational establishments. And his first startup went public on the NASDAQ at the age of 24, reaching a $4 billion market cap. It is the third most successful IPO of 1999. Imagine, that was like a long time ago at this point. It's crazy. That was a crazy year for anybody who's a IPO historian. That was a pretty big year, some big ones there. Uh, and he's passionate about product and marketing strategies and one of the original innovators in the e-commerce space. And his journey has crossed 14 startups and raised over 300 million and has seen over 5 billion with a B in exits. And I'm excited to unpack his career journey and learnings and I'm sure some great stories on the way. So let's do this. Mark McNally, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Adam. Good to be here. Awesome, man. So let's start. Now, I was telling you before, you know, I, I really enjoy unpacking the early career journey because there's so much gold in there. And I talk about my career um, and you've had a, a hell of a start to yours, which, uh, you know, founding a company, as I said, top three IPO of 1999. Let's take it back. You were 24. How the hell did you get to that point? How did you find yourself at 24, you know, leading that? <laughs> well, you know what? It was uh First of all, I was that precocious little kid at five who always knew he wanted to be that entrepreneur. So I was always telling my parents, you know, I was going to give Bill Gates a run for his money. And, uh, you know, that was five-year-old Mark running around the house. So I kind of always knew I wanted to figure out that vehicle. Um, I did the service thing first. So I did six years Army Special Ops. And thank you. when I came out, you know, I was really saying, I don't know where I'm going to find my entrepreneurial journey and I didn't know if it was going to be at a taco stand. I just was ready to start getting ready on the entrepreneurial journey. And I ran into four guys in the back of a warehouse that had this idea that they're going to connect buyers and suppliers on this new thing called the internet. And uh, <laughs> I, I think joined, that Al Gore invented, right? Yeah. I joined, I joined as employee eight and you know, that's a tr traditional stereotypical kind of startup. You know, you're cleaning the bathrooms, answering the phones, doing whatever it took. And then, um, you know, it was ugly before it got pretty, but we were, you know, by the time B2B e-commerce became a thing in 99, we'd been at it for three years. We had real customers, we had real product, and we were able to, uh, you know, ride that momentum into the IPO um, in 99. And, you know, I, to be a part of something like that from a wealth creation, you know, event, you know, five-year-old Mark was like, yeah, this is exactly what I said was going to happen, you know. But... Um, you're also being a part of a wealth decreation event a couple of years later when the market corrected itself. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I always thought the two biggest gifts I got from that experience was one, when you're part of something like that, it demystifies what it looks like to go big. 
you know, when you're actually seeing how these things work. I mean, I was part of writing the S1. I was part of the road show for our secondary offering. I mean, I saw how this stuff came together and, you know, demystified it. So that's always been a gift for me since anytime I'm a part of something. If I believe I've got the people right, the execution, the why right, then the sky's the limit. Um, But I also think, man, when you're part of something like that, you learn everything you ever need to learn about people and a whole bunch of whole bunch of things you didn't want to learn. Um, and I think that's helped me both in the filters of how I apply, who gets, you know, on my journey with me. Um, but also how I nurture or lead because, you know, we were young and we weren't really equipped for that. And, you know, the adults in the room and the advisors and everybody, nobody really equipped us to handle that. And so I'm always very cognizant of sharing my experiences openly with my team so they can be a little bit more equipped as, Tremendous. The, the success comes. And, and and just to kind of rewind for a quick second, if you don't mind talking for a moment about your, your time serving, and thank you so much for, for serving. We yeah, all appreciate that. Um, I mean, did you know during your time in the military that you are going to come out? And I mean, was there ever a thought that you were going to be a career military guy? Or were you always like, I'm doing this, doing my time, and I'm out and moving on? Yeah, you know, I love the military. And, and uh, ever, you know, I was in a very unique unit. And so I enjoyed my experience. Um, you know, you really, it was a little bit like a startup when you're in special ops teams, they give you a little bit of resources, you know, loosely defined missions. Uh, you've got to figure it out on your own, you know, success is not guaranteed. So I think that, um, that just resonated with me, but you also work with really tight knit team. Um, you know, a lot of peer trust, a lot of, you know, familial kind of bonds. It's not a traditional kind of command and control, you know, you might see in a larger military unit. Um, so that just resonated with me. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's something I easily could have done for the rest of my career. And multiple times I've thought about going back in just because I missed it and loved it and, and was good That's at good it. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think for me at least, you know, I was deployed 300 days a year you know, after, you know, five years of doing that, when it became time to re-up, you know, you don't really just re-up for kind of five or six more years. If you're going to re-up that second time, it's kind of a lifer decision. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I was just really cognizant that for me, I wanted to have a family. I wanted to have a career outside of the military. And while it'd be really easy to do the thing that maybe the boy Mark would love to be doing, it wasn't going to build a more fulfilling life that I had hoped for. So I made a tough choice major choices there so let's jump back into into startup life and 1999 i mean it's so funny like we look back on that and and that was 20 22 years ago i mean how much the internet has changed how much startup culture and life has changed um but you went through something pretty messy there i I don't know if you really want to dig into it but you know when i was doing my research it came up um a lot of crap went down with purchase pro right it was it was it was bad news there uh and anybody wants it they could look it up there but some of the executives were charged and sentenced with stock fraud um, and I want to avoid getting into the messy details, but what did, what did you learn from that experience? It had to be pretty, pretty traumatic um, in, a, in a business sense, because I'm sure you've seen some pretty nasty shit during your time in the service. But, but on the business side, this is pretty bad as it gets, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, it was, uh, I learned a couple of things. I mean, we had really set our vision and consistently beat the drum in terms of what we told Wall Street we were going to do and how we were going to do it. And, you know, I I bought that, you know, hook, line and sinker. I thought it was the right plan. We were building a recurring revenue model versus a licensing model. And, you know, that meant that we had a longer term business model. And, you know, it took a little bit of evangelical work, but we actually got a lot of investors on Wall Street behind us. 
And, you know, I think we made a fundamental flaw, the leadership that you mentioned there that ran into some challenges later, you know, made some choices to very, you know, to pivot the business model to a licensing model, essentially just to increase revenue as fast as possible. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, those were, that was the wrong decision for the wrong reasons, you know, and, you know, I think that when you're part of something that goes so big and, you know, it's pretty crazy days when you can see your stock go up and the company goes up a billion dollars in value. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of pressure, you know, investors reaching out. And so I think that, again, it wasn't a decision I liked. You know, I don't think in in and of itself it was uh, any, you know, bad decision in terms of breaking any rules. But like anything, you know, Martha Stewart and others, you see a lot Mm -hmm. of people go down after the fact for how they treat the decisions they made during that time, right? It's like usually a cover up or it's usually a a lie to somebody you're not supposed to lie to, you know, and unfortunately that caught That's some people out. in that equation. You know, I I was fortunate as the most senior person that, you know, came out with nothing. Um but, you know, I had um you know, I, I know the people who are involved and there's a lot of good people who got, you know, caught up in some stuff that they really Certainly it's snowballs, yeah. right? It's snowballs. And, and as you said, it's part of a bigger, bigger machine. It's part of a bigger and, and, and you don't want to be the one on the sideline. And I can't even imagine. You know, it is. You know, I think that people don't realize that, you know, right after the dot com bust, you know, I was reading, you know, articles for managing directors of some of the largest investment banks that I'd had dinner with these guys. And they were telling us, you know, just months before, you're not losing enough money. You need to grow faster. You need to grow faster. And then, you know, after the dot-com bust, they're being quoted in the Wall Street Journal saying, oh, yeah, the dot-com bust, we bet on a bunch of the wrong kids, a bunch of young people didn't know what they're doing. It's like everybody was really complicit, you know. And You know what's happening, guys. Come on. Trying to make, make the market happy. It's a new model. I mean, it's just- I mean, fast, fast forward to today, man. I mean, my, my, I mean, I just saw in the news, say, if you look at, like, the AMC stocks and the crap going on, like, nothing's changed. The same no. bullshit that they're doing, they're still, they're still inflating it, pumping it up and pump and dump. I mean, it's the same yeah. model for, for, for history. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, we haven't probably changed, uh, you know, enough. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of really conflicting motivations and a lot of people complicit in the overall ecosystem of the financial world. But yeah, it's, it's shady, man, but it keeps, it keeps things moving one way or another. So let's get back to talking business. And uh, the B2B uh, direct, uh, direct-to-consumer space is something that I personally been involved with throughout my career. What do you think the biggest change has been? I mean, you were involved in B2B before the Amazon, before the Amazon behemoth came uh, came on. Um, but what has really been that huge fundamental change? Is it, is it the consumer's comfort, the the acceptance, the, um, the convenience? Yeah, I mean, I remember when we started, there was just a lot of debate for years about whether or not people would even be comfortable putting their credit card on, you know, on the internet, mm. you know. <laughs> um, and I think that that's, you know, obviously gone. Um, you know, I think that the COVID's been a fascinating, you know, paradigm shift because we were already pretty neck deep into e-commerce. But whatever big, you know, hurdle we all had to get over, like I've struggled to go to the grocery store now that I'm vaccinated and I can drive there. I'm actually like, why? You know, I can just order online. It'll be here in an hour, you know. <laughs> um, behavior, behavior has shifted and, and for the better and people are sticking with it because it's easy. Yeah, not your shopping list loaded in there. I mean, some people love to go to the market and like look at the fruit and look at the produce, right? And I'm like, fuck it, just 
put the list in and get that shit over to my door and let's call it a day, right? Yeah. My wife is like, no, I need to go. I need to look at everything. I got a specific list. I'm like, why? Just yeah. save the list. Just get it get it done. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know, I think um, in the ecosystem on a larger level, I've, um, you know, I've been doing B2C commerce as well for about half my career and on a pretty big level. Um, built and, and managed the FIFA World Cup 2010 e-commerce site. That was eight and a half billion page views in five weeks. It was the most heavily trafficked site in the planet. You know, so I've, Crazy. I've watched March. millions of dollars be sold to people in 143 countries in a given day you've never met, right? Um, but, um, you know, I think the ecosystem of people who aren't in the industry don't realize that for years, Amazon was a really great place to sell if you were a vendor. Um, mm -hmm. They made it really easy to sell through their marketplace. Their, you know, they didn't really negotiate that tough, to be honest. You could make good money being a, a direct vendor to Amazon. In the last four or five years, you know, as they kind of locked up their the world dominance, they really cranked down on the margins and the vendors. And yeah, you know, I consult for different people. I've, I know a lot of folks in the e-commerce space, and almost everybody will say selling on Amazon is almost a lost leader now. It's hard to make money. And, and I think that that is long. Except for Amazon. That's going to have a, a ripple effect. I think you're going to see a new birth of direct-to-consumer companies that just want to control their own channel where they can make good money. Um, and I think that's going to you know, be interesting. I think as people get more and more used to seeing you know, overnight deliveries and same-day deliveries, no matter what, it's prime or not, I think that the D2C channels are going to start to take off again. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as soon as Amazon was exploding, you saw the Walmarts, the Targets of the world, you know, really be true, true competitors and differentiators. It, it's crazy. I forgot what the percentage is of how many total U.S. pop actually has Amazon Prime. It's some obscene, obscene it number. Yeah. And if you think about just the Amazon Prime membership and you, you know, extrapolate that that cost over the amount of people that have it, it's 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 just insane what that rev stream is. So I want to get back and talk about some good, right? So you know, after your your first startup, you were involved in a couple of other e-commerce and tech companies and executive level. And eventually, you ended up at Good360.com. What made you want to get involved in the nonprofit sector? Yeah, you know, I was uh, recruited to. It used to be called Gifts and Kind International. Um, at one point, it was the seventh largest nonprofit in the world. And uh, they had had some challenges with maybe the, the original founder and they were kind of in a rebuilding mode and they were recruiting the board to be more technology focused and more international focused, which were kind of two of my big parts of my career. Um, and so I joined the board, served in that role for a couple of years at Gifts and Kind International, but it was my first time being part of a nonprofit at that scale and being on a board of a nonprofit. And... I guess my startup, you know, wiring was, you know, I kept wanting to, you know, jump into the ring and help, you know, turn things around and help fix things. And there was a moment in time where um, the board was able to pull together the resources. We were recruiting a new CEO. There's kind of a whole shift at leadership. And uh, I just felt it was a moment where, you know, in my career, I was able to take some time off. And I said, why don't I come on, you know, and bring the e-commerce international experience to the leadership team for one year? and help the new you know CEO and leadership kind of lead a turnaround. And we rebuilt, you know, it's probably the work I'm most proud of in my career. I wish I had stock options in that deal. Um, mm -hmm. But we rebranded into Good360, I think last year during COVID, uh, the organization placed over $700 million of donations. Um, fantastic. To nonprofits worldwide. You know, people can go on to an online catalog now. It used to be all paper-based. You know, they can find products, they can request products, we can give 
the donors recognition for uh, the impact of their donations. We rebuilt the board. Uh, there was a number of years where Carly Fiorina led the board. And so just really put the organization on a much better path and, and very proud of, of my role in that. You know, it definitely took a village, but I'm glad, you know, proud of my, my role. That's fantastic. All the all these foundational building blocks. I want to talk a little bit about your 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 tech background. I mean, uh, tons of experience at some at some big tech places. Uh, uh, people could go look at your resume there. But the theme and the main text, predictive tech and um, and artificial intelligence. What is the overarching big picture value that you see in this type of technology that have kept you so engaged and up close with it? You know, what is it about AI and tech that you're like, this is it. This is the future. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, first of all, I think anything you do in product development or technology for the you know rest of my career will involve AI and machine learning. And so I'm glad that I, I went deep there and I went really deep, you know, dealing with, you know, PhDs, multiple PhDs on the team nonstop and hearing the way they think and challenge, you know, really got me deeper than probably most people. Um, you know, I think that you know, as I, you know, I've had debates with friends about the macroeconomic environment and what's going to happen in the economy and things like that. And the one data point that I keep coming back to is most of my friends in big business or even small business seem to be struggling to hire enough people. Hmm. And, um, you know, I think that's a positive sign for their macroeconomics, but I believe that you're not going to be able to create new people. You're going to end up, it's going to be a great opportunities for software developers and technology developers to you know, look at things or maybe we put four or five people at something and it could be automated into one or less. Um, and it's not removing jobs from the economy. It's probably removing lower value jobs from the economy. Interesting. Um, but but I do believe that that's uh, the future. So you're saying the, bot, the bots are not going to replace us all. Hmm. I mean, we talk I mean, we talk about in recruiting all the time. I mean, that's one of the common threads in recruiting and talent acquisition. And there are certain things that bots could do for some of those lower level tasks, That's right. especially in recruiting for using it as an example. But there are things that have to be human decisions. Yeah, of course. There, there, yeah. there, there has to be there. I look at AI, at least for the next few decades, as an exoskeleton, right? So imagine Sigourney Weaver and aliens, you know, she's getting, you know, <laughs> or, or Avatar, you know, it's, I think it empowers people to be stronger and more scalable, but you're still going to need to have human operators, right? Yeah. And so I think when you look at a lot of things where there's really smart people making a good living, they're not overly scalable. And that's one of the challenges. So if you can take a person that has a brain power, good experience and good knowledge, and you can automate, you know, 55 minutes of their hour that is maybe redundant or not high value, you're just making them more scalable, more powerful. And, you know, I think that's what you're going to see evolve here in the first, you know, next 10, 15 years. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm getting this common thread going all the way back and I, I have a really strong spidey sense that you're just incredibly naturally curious and inquisitive <laughs> and I and I could tell uh, I mean I can't even imagine like you, you go in deep like if you're gonna do something you're gonna go all in right whether it be AI whether it be machine learning um, so let's fast forward and let's talk about the, the current uh, current times and let's talk a little bit about nobody studios first and foremost before I even get into anything why the name <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't even have that on my list. I'm just looking and I'm like, yeah, let's, I'm, I'm always curious how people name their companies. Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, Nobody Studios from the very beginning was meant to be bigger and larger than any one personality. 
And, you know, I certainly knew that I was a catalyst to get it off the ground, but I never wanted it to be about Mark McNally's Venture Studio or whoever else came along. Right, with your name on the door. Yeah, I really wanted it to be a vehicle that was much larger than any one person. Um, you know, I felt like we were tapping into, uh, you know, a lot of people coming out of COVID saying, I'm not going to do things in the future the way I was doing it before. You know, I need to be a part of something that's bigger. I need to be a part of a team that's bigger. I need to, you know, have an impact and change the world. I need to jump out of bed again. And so there was a little bit of a movement around the kind of, you know, initiative. And we always said our companies that we build will be flashy. Our companies that we build will 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 have all the colors and all the logos and all the great right. stuff. But the core incubator should be pretty subdued. So the brand was meant to be that way specifically. Yeah, and it's interesting too. And in the bio, you describe Nobody Studios as, quote, a rapidly growing venture studio that aims to seize the opportunity brought on by creating aggressive by creating aggressively during the coming age of innovative destruction. Mark, what, what is innovative destruction besides sounding like a, a sexy oxymoron, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, it's from our world belief that um, the speed of innovation is about to go into hyperdrive. You know, we've all lived through this, this internet you know, age, which was a massive paradigm shift, and it changed everything from how we date to how we bank to how we elect our, you know, our leaders. Um, but that took 25 years. And we fundamentally believe there's five to 10 paradigm shifts like that in the next 20 years. And they're going to converge and they're going to give you five to 10 years to adapt. And I know that most corporations aren't equipped to handle that. So they're going to end up being fractions of themselves. The ones that do survive are going to be highly, highly acquisitive. You're going to see baby companies of today grow up and be giants of tomorrow. And right about the time they paint the lobby of their new headquarters, they'll probably be disrupted themselves. So... We just really believe that, you know, it's going to be an uncomfortable time for a lot of people because ironically, we know corporations can't innovate at that scale. But now you have a couple other things that have domino effects. Venture world has gone into bigger and bigger bets. Everybody thinks they're going to be a unicorn. You see guys with a seed stage company getting $20 million. It's insane. We fundamentally believe that ruins young companies. Yeah. But ironically, the venture world is creating these big corporate startups that can't innovate anymore. They have their own problems of innovation and they're just a year or two old. Um, and, and so we believe that there's just going to be a lot of failures, but the people who can see that as being the future will have the ability to create, be in the forefront of a lot of impact and change and wealth creation. Awesome. Let's actually double back to that there. And you guys, and you kind of alluded to it, and you guys are a big proponent of not investing too much capital into a startup. What does withholding excessive capital upfront how does that help founders and their companies by not just dumping a boatload of cash on their lap? Let's yeah. unpack that. That's that's I, I, I agree with you. I'm very curious. Look, yeah, I just think there's something to be said for maxing out credit cards and borrowing money from grandma to make sure that you you build a product that people are willing to pay for. And the minute you get too much money, I you know, I feel bad for, you know, some of this generation of new entrepreneurs because they're they're confusing the fundraise with the victory. And, mm. and there's so many side effects to it. One, you raise that kind of money, you start to have a job, right? You're reporting to a board that wants to make sure you're a good steward of their capital. Um, if you just raised money on a thesis and a PowerPoint deck, and two months later you realize, oh, that was wrong, we need to pivot. It's really hard to go back into that boardroom and tell people I was wrong, I need to pivot. Um, right, you have all these kind of inherent things that are in the way of innovation and getting to the right answer. Um, when you have that kind of money, you start thinking things like, 
what's our new headquarters going to be like? And you start hiring titles and people in every direction. And the reality of it is I'm a big believer of, you know, nail it, then scale it. And when it's ready to scale it, bring all the capital in the world. You know, I, I absolutely believe in that. So but, have a true MVP. Have a but true you need product. to have the franchise built first. You need to know what you're Love scaling, it. you know? And why, I mean, why do so many other VC firms make that mistake? Well, there's an ironic reason, but uh, the VC world was created because bankers, you know, Wall Street in particular, looked at everything like, okay, I, where's the EBITDA and how do I value this company, right? Um, so startups couldn't get funding. In the late 70s, you know, some of the guys who had sold their companies to tech giants in Silicon Valley said, you know what, why don't we invest in founders ourselves? And then the VC community evolved and it was, there was a little bit of kind of a deal made in terms of there was multiple swim lanes in every state in their swim lanes. So you had guys who were pre-Series A investors, Series A investors, Series B investors, Series C investors. And a Series C investor never had to go source deals because their buddy from Harvard that was a Series B investor and would call them and say, I've got a deal for you. It's about ready for your stage. Well, that worked really well because Wall Street had this deal that said, you're going to bring us IPOs. We'll bless your IPOs, but we need about a 30% discount the day before. So the Wall Street money machine was just built in. I mean, how can you go wrong if you've got those kind of discounts built in, right? Um, well, Facebook was the first big tech company that didn't go public right away. They sat on the sidelines for two years. They raised billion dollars mm -hmm. from private people. And when they went public, the actual pop that Wall Street was used to seeing wasn't there. And then that played out with a couple hundred more startups. So Wall Street packed up their money in their suitcases, went out to Silicon Valley, told all these, all these venture funds, hey, I know you're only trying to raise a $150 million fund. What if I give you 750? Yeah, I probably didn't think through it. They're human. They said, heck yeah, yeah. took it. Boom, I'll take it. But now guess what? Now you got the law of big numbers. Now you can't write $1 million checks or $3 million checks. And people got uber competitive. So people started writing bigger checks early. Unintended. And it's unintended consequence that now they're writing really big checks really early. And ironically, those checks and balances that used to be all those different swim lanes of series A and B and C and D, they're all gone. <laughs> people are giving them basically series C money on a seed stage company. I mean, the evaluations are absolutely insane. And a lot of it's built on, on customer base. It's how many subscribers, how many members do you have? I mean, you look at something like a Clubhouse app that recently launched and, and they jumped to it. Everyone's jumping on there and the evaluation is based on how many people are using it. I mean, it, that's, you're paying for users. You're paying for eyeballs. Um, I want to double back and talk a little bit about how you build, how you plan on building um, Nobody Studios. And there's a quote from Barry uh, O'Reilly, your, your co-founder, right? Um, talking about merit-based equity. Let's talk about that. He says, high impact contributors to get executive level equity. Is this like a, a vesting schedule or a sweat equity framework on, on, on steroids? How does this work? It's interesting. Yeah, a couple things. Um, you know, we think that talent is the battleground for the next few decades. It's certainly going to be our rocket fuel. Um, and there's some things that we, we can do and we've specifically chosen to do that we think make working with us something that's very, very attractive. So one, when you're a part of the studio directly, or if you're part of one of our new codes, you earn equity across the portfolio. And so giving people that kind of portfolio approach, you know, we have a goal of doing hundred companies in five years and you know, you could be a junior person in one of our new codes, but you're going to be earning equity across that portfolio. And that's exciting. Um, of course. It gives people a lot of different upsides, lots of bites at the apple. 
Um, and then the other thing that, you know, that quote you mentioned with Barry, you know, I, I often say that unfortunately most startups, you know, I've been guilty of telling people, let's work all weekend and you're going to own an island. Um, and the reality of it is it's usually C-level and the investors who see any upside if there is some. And we just want to change that. You know, there's a lot of times where you see a junior person working all weekend, having a huge impact on the trajectory of that company. Nothing. And I want to be able to make sure that we have the mechanisms and we've designed the mechanisms to give them plus plus in terms of the equity so that they can get a meaningful stake regardless of what school they went to or what level they're working it, it, it's tremendous and that's a game changer and that really goes back to the idea of attracting the best talent and how do you do it in this world i mean you and i have spoken offline about the work that i'm doing with Loeb, a very similar model and they're doing a you know that shared kind of equity approach too because how are you going to pull somebody away f with the talent that they need from some of these larger more established companies to something that might be quote unquote unproven there has to be that there has to be that upside there let me ask you about interviewing what what's kind of your it's a broad question, like your, your approach, but I, and I'll say it this way. What's kind of like your, your kind of go-to line of questioning to really see, not talking skill, because I assume, Mark, by the time someone gets to you, they're going to have those skills that you're, the actual skills needed for that job. Now you're really assessing character, personality fit. What are, what, what's that framework and that approach that you take? And how much of your military intelligence training do you apply to it? <laughs> <laughs> Just threw that one in there. Um, you know, I... Uh... I tend to spend a lot of time just hearing people's stories. You know, I don't want them to read to me their resume or kind of walk me through their CV. You know, I just say, I usually say, tell me the things that your CV you wouldn't tell me. You know, like walk me through your timeline a little bit. What's your journey been like? You know, if you want to share some some failures along the way, let's do it. I'll share some of mine. You know, I, I really try to disarm, but get some of the real stories out of folks and get a better feel for where they're coming from and maybe that they're, what their whys are. Um, that matters to me a lot. And then, um, you know, for skills, it's so hard when someone, you know, if they're part of a team that did something, it's always hard to know what they actually did. And it's what just too own. easy too easy to embellish in terms of an interview. Um, so what I'll tend to do is if I know a, a specific type of project, I'm hoping that person could handle after we've gotten past kind of the story and the background of you know who we are, then I'll usually say, okay, let's just, let's tackle a hypothetical project. You know, we're trying to accomplish this. This is the timeline. You may have 10% of the skills. You may have 100% of the skills. You might be able to be the leader, but you know how you'd find the rest of the skills. Tackle this any way you want. Let's just solve it together. Let's figure out how you would, you know, dive into this tomorrow. And I usually let people know there's a lot of right answers. I don't believe in superhuman people who can do it all. I care about knowing where the, the boundaries are so we can also build the right team around you to succeed and, and give people that kind of openness and that, that kind of blank slate to speak, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't set yourself up for success, it's not going to be a good engagement regardless. So I always kind of empower people to just tell me what I can expect out of them and where we want to hire around them. And you know, I tend to get some but, good answers. But how, but how do you assess the, the character and their how? How do you assess that? Because we talk about it all the time. I mean, let's just say maybe there's anywhere from, depending on the level, two to five to six touch points interviews before someone's hired on average at a company. How do you use those limited half hour, hour interviews to really suss out if someone's just a great interview and telling you what you want to hear or saying hey, this person has the, the character, the chops that's going to make it and really be part of, you know, the fabric and nobody. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I have the perfect answer. I, I think I've um, I really go with my gut quite a bit on how I feel somebody and I can always tell when 
people are open and I can really feel their genuineness, you know, their, their, both their strengths, their confidence, their passions, but also their, you know, anything that they might be insecure about or, you know, if I don't feel that and, and it happens a lot, you know, you can feel someone that's kind of holding it close to their chest and I understand that, but I, I tend to not be able to engage deeply with folks like that. Um, and so I'm always just looking for that, that openness, that realness, um, and having the warts out there at the same time as, as the victories. And, um, so yeah, I, I put a lot into my own gut, but it's only, I'm always looking to be able to get to that conversation. That's got some real meat, you know? Yeah. And I, and I love it. What would you say looking back right now after a number of decades out there since your time in the service has been your, your biggest career mistake or regret? <laughs> I mean, um, mine was not getting mine was not getting into bitcoin about four years ago when i tried to sign up for coinbase and i couldn't fund it and i walked away i'm kicking myself for that you know I wants that, to punch me in the head i have that same story um <laughs> yeah but um yeah you know i i don't know uh I, I try not to live with regrets but um you know i i've always i believe that the difference between people who are lucky and not lucky is just people who recognize opportunity and and I've I've been fortunate to recognize a lot of opportunities, but in hindsight, there were some great opportunities that came across my desk that I could look at and go, I was so wrapped up in my own world at that moment, I didn't recognize that opportunity. And and I just look at those as ways to say, okay, how do I hone that over time? You know, how do I how do I in the future maybe pause, remove myself from my own head to maybe look at something fresh and you know just try to hone and. You know, in the world we're at now with nobody, you know, we're involved in building a lot of companies rapidly. And, and it's a it's kind of a skill set we're really building into our leadership team is to say we have experiences, we have knowledge, but we can't walk into these things with prejudices because there's so many new ideas. And some of them might be from non-obvious founders that might not articulate it exactly the way we'd want to hear it. But our job is to hear the brilliance. Our job is to un uncover the brilliance of an idea. And it's a different kind of mindset. And so... You know, I really did look right. at those kinds of opportunities where I missed opportunities in my past that could have been very lucrative and said, okay, how do I learn in the future so I don't do that, you know, next time? Yeah, that, that's awesome. And I, I want to I unpack your quote here. My true gift is to see what is not yet. And to me, it is as real as the ground I stand on. <laughs> Break that down for us, Mark. Let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah, you know, I think everybody's got different, you know, core strengths. Mine has always been vision. Um, you know, being an idea person and a vision person for the first couple decades of my career was not all that popular. So I learned how to execute, um, that paid the bills, but, um, you know, with nobody, I've really embraced my true vision strength. And, and I, I always say I was kind of a closet visionary because for decades I would, you know, pontificate to friends or family or to myself about how things were going to play out in a certain industry or a certain product category or something. And for the most part, it always did. Mm. And over time, it get frustrating that I didn't have a bet on there. I didn't have some kind of <laughs> upside. Of me, right? <laughs> um, and, and yeah, I think that, you know, when you have that, you know, not every leader has to have vision and not every visionary can be a leader. Um, I, I like to try to have the best of both. But um, for something that we're doing right now, it's really easy to get wrapped up into, well, that's a, a rational that's impossible that, you know, we need to go slower. We need to be more measured. You know, it'd be really easy to look at the kind of the aggressiveness of what we're doing. 
but I see how it's going to play out in my mind like like a movie. Like it's just as sure as the sun's coming up tomorrow. And that doesn't mean I have every aspect figured out, but I know the big chapters and I know sometimes we have to be more bold or more fast and the rest of the stuff will fill itself in. And, you know, be, building a team around me that can have faith in that and start to see it with me and then we all start to see it together and we make it better together. You know, I think that that's, that's one of the superpowers that a lot of entrepreneurs have is that naivety um, and being able to see something that isn't yet. And so, you know, it's certainly something that I, I try to double down on. I love it. That, that's super powerful. Mark, what's, what's the single greatest piece of advice that you've ever received that you take action on every single day of your life? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> that's a big, that's a big tall order. Um, you mantra, know, something, a mantra, something you live by. Yeah, you know, I think certainly for me, the last few years have been characterized by um, an evolution away from my ego and into my into gratefulness. Um, and and I think that that's unlocked a lot of things for me and my potential and and this journey and the people we've attracted. You know, I think that it's always easy. You know, we have ego is not something to be you know, mad about or bad. It's not a bad word, right? It's all makes, makes us who we are. Right. Um, but if it, if it comes too much, then it can become a negative. And so I just been very, and again, it goes back to the branding of the, of the studio and everything else is that as long as I'm humble and grateful of what we're doing and rec, you know, recognize that it's always going to be a challenge and that we have, you know, there's a lot ahead of us every single day and we got to stay focused on the why and, and the how and the people, It'll all work out, but I think for me that humbleness has been the biggest change in my life in the last few years. Good stuff, man. And and you launched nobody, you know, April twenty twenty, like a month into the pandemic. Um, I'd love if you could share a, a personal silver lining and a professional silver lining that you've experienced over the last geez, I can't believe I'm gonna say it's like eighteen months. Yeah, right. Um Yeah, you know, I guess for me, um, some of my why was that there was uh, some health stuff going on in the family in 2019 and and we beat it and came out strong and very grateful for that but that was the epiphany for me where it was kind of like you know there's no more time to waste i've always dreamt of doing something like nobody studios and i kind of made the decision first of the year that i was going to do it and then when the pandemic set in that made me the most annoying guy in 2020 because I was positive <laughs> and motivated and excited. Yeah. And he's like, what the hell's wrong with you, man? The world's coming to a freaking end, you know? Um, but, but I think that was a silver lining for me was that it allowed us to resonate with some really fantastic people who kind of coming out of COVID were saying, it's time to do something different. It's time to do something special. It's time to do something bigger, grander, bigger scale. You know, we're not a cause-based studio, but most of the things we build help people. And we have a morality filter that won't let us do anything that hurts people. And so there's a lot of things that we're tackling in mental health and substance abuse and longevity. And there's a lot of different areas that we're, you know, we're innovating. And we, you know, makes you feel good about getting up in the morning. So I think that's been the silver lining for me is just being able to resonate with people at a much broader level. And it's attracted awesome people to the journey already. Good stuff, man. That's that's the way it's supposed to be, right? That's the way that's the way it's supposed to work. I mean, so many people have woken up and they had to make a choice during this pandemic. Are you going to let the pandemic take over you? Or are you going to take control? And sad to say some people lost. 
You know, mm -hmm. I'm not just talking about health. I'm talking about, you know, as far as their career and their business, they didn't seize the opportunity. Uh, and Mark, last but not least, you've had an, an incredible life and an incredible journey along the way. And when you look back at those times when you were down, when those times that you really had to pull yourself up and find that compass, find that light, find that map to pull you forward. And in the times right now when you're looking back and you're grateful for your family and the health of them and the success and your happiness and you want to show gratitude, what is your compass in life? Mark McNally, what is your North Star? Um, you know, I, I, I guess the, the best way I can explain that is, you know, I had a series of epiphanies kind of at the end of 19 that put me on this path. And, um, you know, I think we, we tend to take age for granted until you get to a certain stage in your life. And I think for me, I was on the other side of that coming off the, the health stuff. And I just realized it was time to be way more intentional about how the rest of my days play out. And, um, you know, I think if you're, you know, if you, if you have maybe a, a little bit lucky on the talent side, you know, in the talent bucket when you're born, sometimes it's easy. Things come easier for you. You don't always have to be as intentional, right? And I think that I've probably fallen into that trap sometimes. Um, but for me, it became a very focused mission that I really believe that um, I've got very specific visions about what it means for me to be the father I want to be, the husband I want to be, and the leader I want to be. And uh, I have today to work on that, and hopefully tomorrow. And um, I believe that the vision of Nobody Studios, we're going to be able to impact hundreds or thousands of people. We're going to be able to change a lot of things in the world. We're going to be able to create a lot of wealth. And so, you know, that to me is an obligation. I feel almost like a deal I made with the universe to say, okay, I see that I have an obligation to take my talents and my experience and my skill sets and and do something more meaningful here with the rest of my days. So that's that's my why. Mark, great stuff, man. Thank you so much for joining us, sharing your wisdom, your insights. Uh, I wish you and the team incredible uh, good luck as you build out Nobody Studios. Continue good health and success. Where could folks find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn more? Yeah, nobodystudios.com um, and the things that make us, you know, our world go around or talent, you know, talent's our superpower and our rocket fuel. Um, influence, we got a pretty aggressive strategy about um, partnering with influencers along the way. And then uh, we'll be launching a crowdfunding uh, for capital here in about four weeks. So, um, but tough. everybody can reach us at nobodystudios.com and reach out for anything. Good stuff, Mark. Thanks for joining me today. Hang tight for a moment here as I sign off. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us and spending some time with us on the podcast. I know your time is valuable, and I greatly appreciate it. Likewise, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review, a rating. It goes a long way. You know where to find out more at thepodcast.com. Find us on all the social media channels. Take care of each other. Look out for one another. And catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Wisdom is forever. But for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pausecast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>